Hello, hello, hello. We are back again. It's early, really early morning here. Not really early. It's 6.47. It's it's early for some of us. Veda, say hello. Hello. So, welcome back to Three Desi Things. And Veda, the queen of millet, <laughs> has a new fact for us. But I'm going first. My bad. <laughs> but that's pretty, that was pretty good, though. That was a good idea. I'm going to keep that. Uh, Geetu is going to go first. Hello. So my thing for today is the etymology of the word dam, which actually comes from the Indian subcontinent. Apparently, this phrase can be traced back to I don't give a dummery, which was a low denomination coin in colonial India, which then became shortened to I don't give a damn, which is now colloquially used kind of everywhere, but at the time was used predominantly by the Brits in India, who then brought it back to England and the rest of the world. Yeah, I told you not to use WhatsApp for your factory. No, it's not. It's not a WhatsApp fact. It's true. Okay, there's two theories about this. But according to Hobson Jobson, which was a book, not a book, a glossary of colloquial Anglo-Indian words and phrases written in colonial India. This is where the word is derived from. Now, it's not the same as damn you, which is like damnation. But to say I don't give a damn comes from the word for dumri, which is a really like, it's like a penny. It's like, I don't even give a penny. Oh, And there's a similar British saying, right? That it comes from as well. Yeah. So it comes, it's similar to like, I don't give a brass farthing. Or it's not worth a brass farthing, which was like, again, a very small amount of money at that time. So like when you're telling someone you don't give a damn, it's like I could care less than the smallest coin available in my pocket about what you're saying, which is how I feel about most things. Which is also how Rhett Butler felt about Scarlett O'Hara at the end of Gone with the Wind. (laughs) But he said, frankly, my dear, which is kinder. (laughs) You know, did he actually say that? Because It's not in the book, but it is in the movie. He said I, something about don't give a damn in the book, but the way he says it, this, the famous phrase is from the movie, Clark Gable. Yeah, I thought so. So, yeah, tell me more about this Hobson Jobson character. So, Hobson Jobson is this cool glossary that was written in the early 1900s. And the term Hobson Jobson itself actually comes from this confusion that the British soldiers had at the time, where during the morning of Muharram, um, the British soldiers were confused as to what the Indians who were worshipping were saying, they were saying, Ya Hassan, Ya Hussein, which is what they say during this. Um, it's a period of mourning. Yeah, it's a period of mourning. And I mean, it actually is kind of a racist term because they thought Ya Hassan, Hassan, Ya Hussein sounded like Hobson Jobson. And then they started to just use that word to mean like a festival or entertainment, which again, is racist because it's a misunderstanding of what people are actually doing, like a religious festival. And so that's where this comes from. And it just became like commonly used like, oh, we're going to, I mean, I, I don't know, like go to a Hobson Jobson this weekend, which just meant like we're going to do something entertaining. 
Wow, but there there are a lot of uh, such words, right? With English words with Indian origins. I mean, there certainly were at the time, and some of those like have stayed till today, right? Like we all know that, like the simple ones, right? Like pundit, karma. These are all Hindi slash Sanskrit words that have made it into colloquial English. But there are other ones that I think people know less about, like shampoo, is actually derived from the word jumpy or jumpu, which is like the act of like scrubbing your hair, which one time I lost a trivia game because I didn't know this. That's always wrong. So always wrong. It for so now I'm like shampoo, that's ours. But this text, this Hobson Jobson text was used a lot at the time, especially by people who are writing about India. So like Rudyard Kipling is said to have used it kind of, you can see how he kind of pieces it together in his own writing because that's like the context that he had for a lot of Indian cultural food or geographic locations. I was also reading that Hobson Jobson is a is kind of like a word used for in British literature or British plays. It was a word used for like bumpkin or like these characters who were kind of like stupid and simple minded. It also kind of it has an interesting history in that it um relies on this thing that I'm sure that the Brits noticed that the Indians were doing, which is we kind of repeat, uh, we use a rhyming word to kind of, I don't know even if it's to emphasize, but you know, people are like, oh, my shopping, whopping, like people say the same word in like a rhyming context. And that's kind of what they were picking up on um, at the time. So it's an interesting text because it is an ode to the South Asian subcontinent in a lot of ways. Like they've really done their research about a lot of words. Like I found out that the word amok, like to run amok, is from Malay. Like it comes from the word in Malay to like run or to like scatter. And it was picked up. So it's a little bit of an ode to like what they learned during their time. It also served as a guide. Like when colonialists to come to India, they could like look things up because I'm sure there were like language barriers or like they just didn't know what certain words meant when they got here. As is evidenced by the character in Lagan. <laughs> Lagan, great movie. <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's a bunch of them, right? And it went both ways. Like there were Hindi words or Hindustani words rather that were borrowed from the Portuguese as well, like our word for key, chabi, is derived from the Portuguese. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of uh, Portuguese loan words, uh, obviously, because they were also in India. So, baldi, I think it's in po- Portuguese is like baldi, B-A-L-D-E, I think. Which means bucket. Yeah, bucket. Uh, then there's sabun, which is also if you just like, I'm going to just trans- type in uh, English to Portuguese. Uh, just for the fun of it in Google. If I write soap, uh, in Portuguese it says sabonet, which are S-A-B-O-N-E-T-E. So it's similar to sabun. Then there's nilam, which is auction. And speaking about loan words from Southeast Asia, the word goddess also derives, I think, from uh, a Malay The word. word goddess or the word like in Hindi or the word in English? No, the word goddess in English. Hmm, that's interesting to me because goddess just seems like the feminine of God, which they had. Yeah, but I think I read somewhere that goddess is kind of uh, derived from the Mal- Malay word gadis. Oh. 
because english as a language has evolved so much right and uh, it's really funny and kind of amazing if you think about it that around the same time the oxford dictionary came into being so they started uh, efforts to make the oxford dictionary some in somewhere in the 1850s and i think the first edition came out somewhere in 1884 yeah, or somewhere yeah and then it was redone in the early 1900s and thanks to uh hobson jobson a bunch of hindi words showed up in the first oxford dictionary so there's words like achar which is pickle baniya which is baniya <laughs> merchant merchant i guess yeah bajro which is barge brinjal so all of these ended up in the f- very first english oxford dictionary did i just hear a call back to millets there the <laughs> vegetable no bajro isn't that barge is that's a millet right or like barge is in no, the no. ship bajra oh, is like barge is the i got millets on the brain you guys millets on the brain let's hope that people have heard the earlier episode guys if you haven't heard veda had an excellent fact in episode 2 about millets that had us rolling on the floor But it's interesting because uh you know as Sarab you're saying that you know English is like absorbed so much from all these other you know languages and you know the exposure through history and um you know today people are so uh particular about um they kind of discount this history there's a particular about like oh how people pronounce words and accents and stuff when it's been it's been a mix from the beginning. Like a lot of scholars have talked about how Hobson drops in the excuse me the glossary of terms really shows like the multiplicity of India and how it had really at that time become this hub where things just came together, right? There's Portuguese words, there's British words, there's just the wide array of Indian languages that influence different words being used. There's various religions. Like it's truly like a you know the old like melting pot scenario but it was at that time like people were really coming together language was developing i mean there's so many words right like a word used a lot during the quarantine pajama it's a hindi word right pajama is an indian word a loose fitting pant is a desi concept you're welcome world there's also a juggernaut which i think is derived from jagannath oh That's correct. As if Veda is Veda is hops and drops it. Veda is like that is correct. I will allow this fact to exist. Also Veda recently published for the Juggernaut, right? <laughs> That's right. That's kind of why I know it. <laughs> there's, a fa- there's a famous temple in India to Lord Juggernaut, so. You know, it seems like we also I just want to point out that we seem to have gotten a lot of bathroom words from Portuguese, the Portuguese, toalha, a towel, also derived from the portuguese this is so interesting how it goes both ways right yeah especially because whatsapp culture would tell you that we have only given words we have not received any words <laughs> shall we talk about prepon which is primarily used only in india so funny story i'm at a conference and i'm sure this happens to people all the time and i i was like oh you know i can actually make that session because my other panel has been preponed and the person i was speaking to just like looked at like froze <laughs> like oh, what did i just say and i was like oh i'm so sorry you know actually it's uh, you know a, a word used a lot in india so you know there're all these <laughs> english words that are used in india which a lot of americans may not be quite familiar with the meaning <laughs> That's funny. So because I was reading this article on Quartz India, so prepon actually exists in the Oxford Dictionary. So uh, the article says 
that it was used in the West before. Uh, and the first usage is somewhere in 1549. Uh, but at that point, it kind of meant to place in front of. So the first guy who to use it, somebody called Robert Crowley, uh, he wrote, I do prepone and said the Lord always before mine eyes. And these are like funny spellings because mine is spelled M-Y-N-E. <laughs> but after the 1600s, there's no real record of the word being used. And then directly in 1913 is in the New York Times, actually is when the word shows up again it says for the benefit mainly of the legal profession in this age of hurry and bustle in 1913 may i be permitted to coin the word prepone as a needed rival of that much revered and oft invoked standby postpone it's some oh it was actually a reader who wrote to uh, the times but even so it seemed to have lost its usage or lost its relevance in the west but we have like kind of completely taken it up word yeah. there is no word for that thing right there's no word for this concept of let's push it forward right or make it happen earlier like i feel like you have to explain that prepone you know okay you say push it forward yeah in my brain push it forward means let's postpone it bring it earlier but that's the, there's no good way of saying it so like while while you were talking i just googled a bunch of hops and jobs and words the malay word uh this is not from south asia but i guess the malay word kampung which means village became the english word compound there's a bunch of other words uh the word ketchup probably come from the cantonese word ketchup that's there you go americans not so american after all heinz so ketchup comes from like a cantonese word uh hokkien word i think uh for fish sauce which is which is I'm going to butcher this, so apologies. Uh, it's ketchup, so K-E-C-H-I-A-P. Obviously, loot comes directly from Hindi or Hindustani. Paraya, I think, comes from Tamil. Then there's bandana, which comes from bandana. Oh, bandana comes from bandana to Thai. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? I always call it bandana. I don't know. Pronunciation's lame. Say whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is to go back to what we were saying, like language is so fluid and it's ever changing. So to say, you know, that like there's only one way to say a word or only one way to express a thought using a word is ridiculous. And I'm starting a new hashtag, hashtag bring prepone back. Which is ironic. Bring back prepone. <laughs> prepone, prepone. <laughs> but there's there's other words that Indians use, right? Like kind of colloquially that we don't say so much in the West. Like I remember the first time I got an email from an Indian um, colleague that said, I will revert back. And I thought to myself, revert back to what? And that just means I will respond to you or I'll get back to you on this. And I was like, what is he reverting to? Like, I just didn't know. I will revert back. Then there's, I will do the needful. Oh, I love, I will do the needful. That makes sense though. I was like, oh yeah, you'll do what's needed. Thanks, bro. Or uh, what's your good name, which is like a literal translation from like Hindi, apka shub naam kya hai. But uh, there are also words that like time boss, which like, oh, yeah. I don't know that people are going to be able to adopt that beyond here. But I I mean, it's it's like, like a guilty pleasure or, you know, something that's just like for now, uh, but it's used a lot. 
as Sarah mentioned, I did this article for the Juggernaut on movie culture, movie watching culture. And I was asking people like, you know, what about their favorite movies and stuff. And there were a lot of people were like, oh, it was just Steinbach. Okay. But this is like a real conversation that I've had with people because time passed means different things to different people, right? Like when Sarb says it, like if you say like, how was this movie? And he was like, time passed. To me, that means the time just passed. Like it has no substance. To Sarb, it means it was worth the time you put into it. I don't think it means what you think it means, Deepika, at all. Like, they don't mean, <laughs> like, just oh, wrong. passes the time. It was, like, worth it to, like, for fun, for now, um, but not, like, something award-winning or something like that. Exactly. That's exactly how I use it. And this is, I mean, this is kind of straight from... Uh... What that, what's that guy's name? Oh, uh, yeah. I was going to say Luke Kenny. But <laughs> no, no, it's no. not Luke Kenny. Kanan Gill stand up. He, yeah, he has a really nice bit about time pass. And that's like how I use it. If I say something is time pass, it's like, okay, it's not great. It's not like like high art, but it's time pass. It's like, <laughs> I think it's self-explanatory. But the thing is that you can also say like, what are you doing? And people say time pass, which means chilling, nothing. So... I mean, I think it's a it's an apt word to describe several of my ex-boyfriends. So. Do you want to talk more about that, Vayla? I think we'll pass. That's a time pass. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's postpone that. But I, I really do want to circle back to Goddess, which I was right. It is from a Malaysian... <laughs> Goddess is from this the Malay word called Gadis, I guess, which is young woman. And... Oh. Godown is from Gudang, which kind of makes sense because there's a cigarette called Gudang Karam, so it's like hot warehouse. Of lung cancer? Uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. We do not condone smoking on this podcast. Right. Anything else? No, any more words? No, but I would just encourage people. Hobson Jobson is available on the internet in its full glorious form. Like, just look through it if you're bored. If you need, if you need to do some time pass, <laughs> look through Hobson Jobson because there's a lot of words in there and you kind of get a sense of like, the things that the Brits were confused about, like there are pages and pages about the word achad because they couldn't quite understand this concept. They were like, is it a sauce? Like, what's the purpose of this condiment? <laughs> they were like, but it's not like our pickles, which are just salty. Nah, bitches, it tastes real good. It's fair. They don't really know. So they they took achad. It's like a side dish. As a side dish of pickle and they really regretted I it. I think, you know, my takeaway from this is like the next time you know, if you overhear somebody, you know, on the subway being like, oh, why can't people speak in English if they're speaking in Spanish or Mandarin or Hindi or some other language? Just remember that uh, English is kind of a mix of a lot of different, a lot of different languages. Veda, the queen of millets, has, uh, I believe, a fact about some other queen. Indeed, I do. So my thing for today is that an 18th century queen from Tamil Nadu, Velunachiar, in 1780, was the first Indian queen to successfully fight off the British and regain her kingdom. So basically, in a nutshell, what happened is that uh, her husband was a king and he uh, refused to pay taxes uh, to the British. And so uh, the British allied with another Nawab and... Uh, took over the kingdom and killed her husband, the king. And she managed, She and her daughter managed to escape. And they stayed in exile for several years while she plotted her revenge. 
And a revenge it was because basically <laughs> she managed to uh, get an ally in uh, the Sultan of uh, Mysore, Heather Ali, and he provided her with some military assistance and equipment. And she trained an all women's army. And this all women's army fought a bunch of battles to try and get back the kingdom. And she had an ally in her army commander. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that because she's very interesting. But her army commander, this woman named Kuili, basically carried out what is kind of a suicide bombing by entering into the British uh, warehouse of arms and blowing herself up. She, she applied ghee and oil on herself and blew herself up and, you know, where the British kept their ammunition. And that gave them the, the edge. And this queen, Nachiar, was able to get her kingdom back. And eventually her daughter became queen after her. And this is like years and years before the Sepoy Rebellion or, I mean, even the idea of Indian independence and stuff. Like, this is in the 1700s. That's crazy. Right. The eight, I mean, the 1857 rebellion is, you know, really well known. It's the first big concerted effort against uh, the British East India Company. And this is decades before that. It's a story that's not that well known, but it's very kind of inspirational of how she kind of managed to not give up. They found like writings and stuff from the time that talked about how like brilliant she was, right? Like she, there's some quotation about how she was like her husband's like source of comfort, but also tactical advice and military strategy and stuff, which is really cool. And what I want to go back to, Veda, is that she started an all-woman army. It was called the, I'm going to pronounce this probably incorrectly, but the Uriel Woman Army. And what's right. really cool about that is she named it. Uriel is the name of this woman who, when Velu Nachiar was running away from the British, this woman kind of spotted her and, or gave her shelter. It's not really clear what she did, but when the Brits came and asked her about the queen, she said, I haven't seen her. Like, I don't know where she is. And the Brits, in anger, killed this woman. So Velu Nachiar named her army after, in like honor of this woman who had protected her, which is so cool. It's interesting because of the stories of this, uh, how many women kind of came together in this effort, because, you know, I mentioned her commander, Kuili, uh, who's, you know, actually a Dalit woman, and she was uh, the daughter of a of a cobbler who was spying for Velu Nachiar. So he was helping her and then his daughter became close to the queen and, you know, saved her life many times and then eventually came up with this strategy because basically what was happening is that the British, uh, you know, had better weapons. And so they were like, let's hit them where it hurts and get the edge. And she came up with that strategy. Right. And it was like a really interesting, like tactical effort. They used the fact that they were women to their benefit. So it was like, on Vijay Dashmi that this suicide bombing happened, which is like symbolic for a, a number of reasons. But at that time, women were allowed to go into this temple in this area where the Brits were. And they used that to get close to them and then led to this attack, which ultimately led to Velu getting, as Veda mentioned, her kingdom back. There's a lot of talk about how she waited eight years, right? Like, I read several times where she was like, I didn't want to act out of emotionality. Like I wanted a strategic planned um, return. So she waited eight years and like enlisted Heather Lee, who gave her like 
5,000 infantry and 5,000 like cavalry members to ultimately attack the British. Like, Yeah, and it's so interesting that everybody kind of talks about uh, Rani Lakshmi Bai, who is seen as the kind of the, one of the faces of the 1857 mutiny. But there are there are stories like this that don't really get highlighted. But she's celebrated in Tamil Nadu, right? She is. And both she and Kuili, the commander, are celebrated. Um, and there's also now um, apparently a postage stamp in uh, Belu Nachiar's memory. But you know what we could use? And I think Veda also mentioned this earlier in like a private conversation is like movies about women like this. Like, why are we making these movies where like, the queen is like helpless or, you know, lost without the king. Let's talk about these women. And I think there are more women in India who have this sort of like amazing story and chutzpah and we don't talk about them enough. Like I said, even when I like when we were taught history, Rani Lakshmi Bai is like one of the main stories that comes up. And she has an amazing story herself and how she led the rebellion. But there are several women who before that... Uh, have also fought against the British. So one of them is Rani Chennamma. She's from Karnataka, so she she's kind of referred to as Kittu Chennamma. Also rebelled against the British in 1824. And this is to do with... Uh, so she lost her husband and uh, her son tragically. So somewhere around 1824, when her son died, she adopted a boy called Shivlingappa. But this violated uh, a doctrine that was present at the time called the Doctrine of Lapse, which allowed the British to annex any kingdom which did not have a male heir or like a rightful, quote unquote, rightful heir. So the British were like, oh, our king, the, your kingdom is kind of ours now. And she pleaded with the with the lieutenant governor of Bombay to let her son take over because she, like she's adopted him so he can become king. But the British said no and they went to war with her. And so they went in with like 20,000 men and like several, like hundreds of guns. And they ended up losing. And the queen took two officials hostage. Wow. And used that to negotiate her position back to rule. So she was like, okay, if you want your, if you want your officials back, let me rule. Leave me in peace. You know what? Like with Nachiyar and this queen and even Jhansi Kirani, what you're seeing is like a lot of strategy, right? It's not brute force, which... I think is really interesting. Like these women used wit and guile and cunning to their advantage and kicked ass. Yeah. And uh, like Velu Nachiar is celebrated in Tamil Nadu, Kittur Chennamma is very uh, famous in Karnataka. And she's her bravery is kind of celebrated in the Kittur Utsav, which is like the Kittur festival, uh, which actually happens in October, somewhere, uh, somewhere around October 22nd to 24th every year. That's really interesting. And yeah, unfortunately, the British kind of promised to leave her alone, but they attacked her again. And this time, again, she waged a battle for like 12 days, but she was betrayed by two of her soldiers who mixed uh, cow dung with dung powder, (laughs) cow dung with gunpowder. So yeah, the British kind of, they captured her and imprisoned her for life in in the Bailhongal fort. I, I found her story quite amazing. 
You know, as I'm hearing this, you know, I'm really struck by how even in this 18th century and 19th century, the this like patrilineal system was, you know, becoming a problem and people were, you know, trying to find solutions around it and, and stuff like that. And I'm sure earlier as well, what you described, Saurabh, the story of this queen of Jannama of Karnataka, that was also what was happening with Rani Lakshmi Bhai of, of Jhansi. That's how the British were trying to annex Jhansi, which is why she was trying to fight because uh you know she had she had adopted a son um Mm -hmm. and so this this struggle of like okay not having this like rightful biological male heir and then like trying to secure a kingdom and then being like but what about the queens and what about the princesses which also highlights the fact that a lot of that patrilinear stuff is a western concept right there were so many communities in india or rather the South Asian subcontinent at the time, that were matriarchal. And that kind of got wiped out when the Brits came because they only believed in this like patrilineal nonsense, even though they've had queens. I guess they just descended from the right line. Or they were just trying to use whatever they could to get power. I mean, probably more of that than anything else. I mean, it's just interesting you saying this because, you know, talking about like, you know, what we see in art and movies, like very controversial Padmavat movie where the queen Padmavati and they, you know, have sati because, you know, they're going to lose their kingdom. And that's like very much glorified. But this was not the only act of resistance that was happening. Exactly. Right. Like if you look at any of those movies made about that time, it's the king is losing his kingdom. The queen is supporting him emotionally. And they both like I don't know, like are showing their resistance through sacrifice. But actually in history, in Indian history, there is such a strong um, culture of women standing up, taking charge and winning. Like, why don't we highlight that? Yeah, I mean, there's very, I can't think of a good Bollywood, except for Lagan, I can't think of a good sort of Bollywood historical fiction film. And they've butchered so many stories and made it Bollywoodized, I guess. Well, so patriarchal, right? Like everything is in the hands of the dude. Even Lagan, like there had, you know, like the, well, no, I guess the British woman is helpful. What's her name? What's, what's her name? Gauri? What's her Gauri, name? Yeah. Bhushan's Gauri, yeah. Bhushan's Gauri, the Bhushan. Crazy thing. Bhuvan. <laughs> Bhushan. <laughs> Not Bhushan, Bhuvan, Bhuvan. I'm going to get a reputation as a girl who can pronounce nothing. Bhushan? <laughs> you know, Bhushan from Lagan. Bhuvan's girlfriend is just like present like you know she does a nice dance like we need these stories to show little Indian girls that like he plays a pivotal moment when he's with the cricket bat and thinks of her saying I believe in you (laughs) that's but that's the thing women are like I'm here for you bro like that's the only role we ever see like let's show these women I want a movie about Velu Natyad and her cool yeah. commander-in-chief that's true I mean they should definitely take up take up these stories but somebody who can Ashtosh. do it well Ashtosh. Ashtosh's movie would be like the full eight years that she waits to attack the British we would have to watch all eight years of just waiting you know it's interesting like you know that there's this that really famous movie Bahubali and yeah. I mean I guess it's like a famous arc right like you lose a kingdom and then you know you're in exile in this case he's the son and then you know he comes back that's the story of that film is just like you know son trying to avenge um and come back and regain his kingdom and has been outside for like all these years I mean this is like reality 
Yeah. Like this happened. And before we move on to Sarb's fact, I just, nobody ever said this, but Heather Ali is Tipu Sultan's dad. So like nepotism. But that's literally how monarchy works. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to say nepotism. All right. What I want to talk about today is also on the British theme since we are since we somehow inadvertently have landed on this theme of shitting on the British. My thing for this week is that chai, which we are so known for now, Indians did not actually like it at all. And it's purely because the British used an aggressive marketing strategy using the railways and your local tea shops that we have become so addicted to chai and we are so we love our chai now it's purely because of their marketing strategy that's really i mean that's unfathomable to me that there was a time that indians didn't love chai because literally as we sit Veda's drinking it right now like one of us is probably drinking chai at any given time so uh, i mean the word chai itself comes from chinese it comes from cha for tea yeah it's a mandarin word i mean the origins of tea are kind of vague uh and like it's difficult to verify but there's consensus that the chinese were drinking tea like i think 2000 years ago like i'm going to talk a little bit more about tea uh later but like the chinese had a monopoly on exporting tea in the 1800s and they were the only country that were selling tea uh, and the british wanted to break that monopoly and which is why they started to explore options to grow tea in india and they managed to do that and then once they once indian tea started becoming more common they heavily promoted it in their own country and australia where they promoted it in, in among the working class and they and indian tea tends to be stronger and like more black in color so the working class factories and mills they kind of took to it but in the early 1900s uh the indians did not really drink tea and uh they saw it as like a drink of the colonizers so there was an indian tea board or indian tea association how however you want to call it so they started providing tea in government offices uh by the start of the first world war factory owners started uh giving their workers tea breaks with free uh tea on the on the premises to keep them happy so this the tea break kind of became a part of uh the working culture in india around that time it's just uh you know hard to uh imagine you know and it's very interesting to look back at how it evolved like this because you know you know that look when like someone's like ordering you know like a chai or a chai latte like your white friends are like oh i'm having some chai and like they're like okay great like congrats like you don't have to look at the brown person in the room <laughs> but but actually like you know once again like language like kind of evolved through multiple factors economic as well so the chai thing is really interesting though like because i mean the brits did everything possible to get the people of india addicted to tea which worked right like now india consumes about 837,000 tons of tea a year Yeah and like i was saying the the railways were uh, the railways and the tea shops were a big part of it so when the indian tea board they they wanted to publicize and kind of get people to drink tea as a habit uh they gave like small contractors and like small businessmen uh tea kettles cups and tea in like little packets and they told them to sell this at railway stations in punjab and bengal and like the northwestern frontier and like 
most things Indian, we decided to add our own twist to it. And they started putting milk and sugar, which, which the tea board hated because this is hot, not how they thought tea should be made. It should, uh, they thought the tea should be made in the quote-unquote British way. But these guys decided to add milk and sugar because uh, that hot tea went really well with the biscuits and pakoras and all of the other snacks sold. So they also set up their own shops in major towns. But like the local guys came in and set up their own little shops and uh, sold it at a lower price. And uh, the, the British shops had to close because of that. And these guys started adding uh, spices to uh, the tea. So which the tea association was like horrified when these guys started adding spices. Like this is from multiple sources. One is from Lizzie Collingham's book called Curry. Then there's this paper by a professor at University of Iowa. So when these guys started adding spices, the British Tea Association or Indian Tea Association was horrified. And I want to read out one quote by one of these people who found out. It says, it is in the Kanpur, which is Kanpur, mill area, where we have found this so-called spiced tea. And we are now employing our own hawkers in that district who sell well-made liquid tea in direct competition to the unsavory and badly prepared decoction known as spiced tea. <laughs> the Brits cannot handle when someone takes something, which India has done with most things, and makes it better. I am the WhatsApp forward auntie of this group. <laughs> but I, like they added spices, they added milk, and they were like, oh no, this is not proper. But bro, our thing caught on. Now Starbucks tells masala chai lattes. So... Originally, even amongst the British, like their version of tea um, uh, was originally like more like an elite, harder to get kind of thing. And then at once, like sugar was uh, getting produced, like in the Caribbean and sugar, all these sugar plantations, they were like, oh, we can put the sugar in the tea. And it became like not just this like elite drink. Um, and, you know, and it became kind of like the milk and sugar British tea. And so that changed as well. And then, you know, here we have that they add, you know, in India, they added in the spices, and then they're like, Oh, what the hell is this? So uh, the tea itself has evolved many times. too. It's yeah, it's interesting that you met sugar, because when they started adding sugar to tea, uh, and this happened in Britain, too, I think they realized that they needed to cultivate sugar, uh, which is what was like one of the major drivers of sugar plantations and uh, indentured labor being transported to places like Mauritius and uh, some of those other colonies in the Caribbean. Oh, right. I mean, it's so interesting that tea has driven so much of like history, right? One, I think it's fascinating the fact that they like work to get people addicted to it, but then it became like a type of currency, right? Like the Boston Tea Party, like there's so many historical um, moments associated with what's now just like a casual beverage. Tea is actually indirectly the reason for the opium wars. Because basically, as Saurabh said earlier, you know, China was making tea and the British were importing tea and they had so much of a demand for tea. And they were like, okay, we're, we just have the demand for it, but like, what can we trade back? And what do they want? You know, we need to create a demand for something. And so they, it was because of this imbalance in trade that they were like, oh, let's, you know, what about opium? And so like basically trying to get people addicted to opium so that they can then sell it. Yeah, that's right. And that's how the, that's how uh, the Chinese emperor ended up losing Hong Kong and Hong Kong became a British colony, I guess. But yeah, so the tea association people also went to, 
So they did tea demonstrations. So they went to different homes in the area and showed them how to make tea. Um, they went to villages and uh, gave people free cups of tea and to attract people to drink this strange beverage. They showed movies. So people came to watch the movie and also they they drank tea along with it. And it, it really took like tea really took off just after independence in the 1950s. When like all of these estates that belonged to the British were turned over to Indian businessmen and they started an aggressive marketing campaign of they rebranded tea or chai as uh, a Swadeshi or a like a homegrown product. Uh, so there were two things. One, the technology changed. Uh, it became easier to mass produce tea. And also they started marketing it as like a Swadesh, like a homegrown product. So people took to it. But the history of tea in India is like quite old right there's several places that say like the first mention of tea is in the court of king harshvardhan who like was kind of it kind of made me laugh because he was using it to stay awake during court meetings um they were like much like today zoom meetings are a snore so he was just like guys give me that caffeine and he was like giving it to other members of his court so that everybody could just like stay awake and stay present so like not much has changed but before tea, you know, uh, became popular, I mean, what has been around for centuries has coffee in the region, right? Yeah, and I think coffee came with uh, the traders from Arabia, and I think it came from uh, Yemen. 12 Yemen Street, Yemen. <laughs> Friends reference. Friends reference. Is there some places where, you know, coffee made its way and like stayed more entrenched versus like the tea or is it like more universal that tea just... There is. So the coffee is more prevalent in the South and definitely in Karnataka. So there's a fascinating story, which I don't, I don't know how much of it is true, but there was this uh, Sufi saint called Baba Budan who stole seven, uh, stole or brought seven beans, I guess. Yeah. Seven beans of coffee from Yemen over to India and planted it in the hills of what is now Chikmangalur, which is close to close to Mysore. It said that those became uh, the coffee fields or plantations, uh, which are present now. But that, I mean, loosely, uh, there's evidence of people drinking coffee in the 16th and 17th century in India. And if you go by train to India, like once you cross over Maharashtra and you cross over into the south, you'll, you're more likely, you will get chai, of course, but you are more likely to get coffee. Really good coffee. Yeah. I don't know what they were drinking before that we're missing out out now. That's true. And there were like a lot of Ayurvedic beverages at the time, right? That were like very herbal. And the masala and the masala chai actually is thought to come from this idea of like a hot spice-based beverage. And they just were doing it without the tea leaves. So once they had that, they were like, all right, cool, fusion drink. But I have, I found out something kind of uh ancillary but like interesting about the tea bag so the brits were not only trying to make tea popular in india they were trying to make it popular at home as well and like individual merchants were trying to get it into every kitchen and this one guy by the name of thomas sullivan in 1908 um, the story goes he was trying to like popularize his tea shop or his brand of tea. So he put the tea in like little silk sachets and like gave a free sample essentially to like every person that he could find. But the people were kind of like confused as to what to do with the sachets. So they just put the whole bag in hot water and they were like, oh, this works too. And there's less cleanup. So the tea bag was born. That's hilarious. Yeah. 
So, I mean, there's also another story. There's two conflicting stories. They say these women in America also um, did it because for single people, they were like, who's going to brew a whole pot of tea? You waste so much. So they were like, great idea. We'll do these little sachets. You can brew one cup at a time. That story is less fun. And it's about people who have to drink tea alone. So let's go with Thomas Alvin. But interesting that they were thinking about single people back then, too. Yeah. It's true. Grocery shopping for one person is hard. It's hard to cook for one person. It's the HelloFresh of the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) HelloFresh, if you want to sponsor us, we are available. Also, Sun Basket. Also, Blue Apron. We will take anybody. (laughs) See, these issues were always there. Hashtag single life is hard. Even tea before these ladies came in was not for the single person. Um, Can I talk about how... As usual, Sarp wants to go back to the fact. Fine, go back to the fact. I wanted to just mention how crazy, like the crazy schemes that the Brits went to to cultivate tea in India. Tea is actually, the Assam tea is native to India, right? So there was this Scottishman named Robert Bruce who was shown that there's there's tea native to India when the Brits were still kind of uh, scouting for how to grow this in India. And there was this guy called Maniram Diwan who arranged a meeting between him and the and the local Singfo tribe. This tribe has been drinking tea for centuries and their leader Bisa Gam or Gum uh, showed this uh, Bruce how to brew uh, a beverage. But they kept trying to cultivate tea and they stole tea from China twice. Uh, the first time I think it was this guy called J.G. Gordon who stole like thousands and tens of thousands of plants and came back to India and try to cultivate it and those plants kind of mixed together and cross-pollinated with the local species and gave rise to a shit brand of tea. Um. <laughs> like they also sent this guy called Robert Fortune who dressed up as a Chinese guy in 1848 and stole tea seeds and saplings to India. Okay, how does a white guy dress up like a Chinese guy? Apparently this was a thing that Europeans were dressing up as Chinese. I think that used to happen. Well, I mean, I said that and then I was like, in Breakfast in Tiffany's, Mickey Rooney dresses up as a Chinese neighbor, remember? And it's super offensive. Yeah, they. The, so Robert Bruce's, uh, not Robert Bruce, Robert Fortune's book uh, mentioned that he dressed up as quote-unquote Mandarin, a Mandarin. And so when people asked him like, okay, where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from way outside the, the Great Wall. So I'm like from a far province and i'm chinese and he spoke chinese or mandarin i guess well well enough that people could converse with him or he was like this accent is from the north well enough for the british i know but he was pretending to be chinese but he was like no you know where i'm from this is how we speak and the brits the chinese were probably like oh no however he convinced convinced the chinese that he was one of them uh, he went to visit a factory, a tea garden, I guess. He again managed to steal saplings and seeds and send them back to India through Hong Kong. And most of them, I think, were spoiled on while by the time they came to India. The great robbery or whatever was not that successful, but he was able to learn a lot of methods that he later applied and helped grow the tea industry in India. He's stealing these things and doing like what? Like he's putting him in his shirt and like running like i don't understand what how he's getting away with so much stuff he's thought to be chinese the chinese were like okay fine take it to your province in my head he's like put it under his pagoda hat like he's just like full racist version of a person at the time it's like put a tea thing under his pagoda hat and just like run it's so funny to imagine like 
you know, but in- intriguing to imagine that like the coveted thing at the time is like, you know, how to cultivate the tea and the recipe. Now it's like, oh, what's the recipe for Coca-Cola? Like, it's like guarded secret. I guess the thing that we have that in now that pa- can barely parallel this is like electronic stuff, right? Like what do we kind of try to infiltrate into? Yeah the world in this way like they left no stone unturned into become the the biggest producers of tea getting everyone addicted to tea this is kind of crazy yeah it's i think it's one of the first at least the first documented corporate espionage and there's a there's a book that i want to mention which is called for all the tea in china how england stole the world's favorite drink and change history so it's by sarah rose so it's like there's an entire book on the tea heist Another great movie. Why are we watching these dirty movies about, like, I don't even know, when there's such interesting stories? Stories in history, and we're watching Golmal 5. <laughs> there are really interesting stories. This was such a currency at the time, and now it's in every home, on every shop corner. It, I mean, it worked. They did exactly what they wanted to do. So, you know what? There's this um, there's this restaurant in New York, in Manhattan, an Indian restaurant. Um, and there, they were this one of the staff members was selling herself as like the world's first tea sommelier. And I was like, is that a thing? I mean, tea sommelier is just like a fancy warrior of saying tea taster. But I did read somewhere that tea tasting is one of the most well-paid professions in the world. What do they do? Taste tea. For what? For the companies to tell them quality? like For flavor and for like, because it's it's mass produced, right? So if they kind of, I don't know, if they dry it too much, how does that affect the flavor? I'm... Can I get a consulting gig for like <laughs> just <laughs> Funny side note, so Piyush Pandey, who's the the worldwide creative director of Ogilvy, used to be a tea taster and he's like a big, he's like a legend in Indian advertising. Tea is like everywhere. But anyway, going back to tea tasters. Yeah, I think they taste for like the integrity of the flavor. And because there are now so many, there's various types of black tea and they have different like bouquets of flavor. And I think you have to maintain that. Yeah, and uh, like the tea that we drink uh, is quote unquote low grade. So oh God, there's like there are teas, tea grades in Assam and Darjeeling, which costs like hundreds of dollars per gram or whatever per little unit. Said to, like said to have a very fine taste. Obviously, I have not had it because oh God. <laughs> How do you get that? Can you buy them online? You can buy it. I think in Darjeeling and uh, I think a friend of mine had gone there and you can buy it. But like it costs like 25,000 rupees or something, which is like, I don't know how much, $300. I mean, you can get it here also, right? Like you, it's like there's very fancy tea brands that you can get. Funny side story. One time my Masi, who doesn't didn't know how to use my Amazon, ordered $700 worth of tea on my Amazon account, and it was like three boxes. So you can get that stuff here. Some of these tea plantations, though, are, you know, really um, exploit the labor a lot. No, that's true. Like the, even when they started out in the 18, like the late 1800s, the Brits cleared a lot of forests and grabbed a lot of land. And even now, the the word plantation doesn't have the same connotation in India as it does in the US. But in a way, the people who pick the leaves are not paid very well and like the working conditions are kind of bad. Right. Um, so 
I just thought this was interesting. There's like a lot of legends around how tea was discovered, right? I don't think most of them are verifiable, in fact, because they're so old. But one that I really liked was that a Chinese emperor had a cup of boiling water and tea leaves just like blew into it. And it like turned a different color. And this guy just thought to himself, let's I'm going to drink this and see what happens. And that's how tea in China apparently was discovered. All right, that was it. A super Brit-focused episode. That's it for this week. We will be back once again with three new things to talk about. Three Desi Things was Saurav Datar, Veda Shastri, and Geetika Kallu. You can reach us at 3DesiThings at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and any other platform that you wish. Please leave us a review. It will help other people find us. And yeah, see you soon.